Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you heard of pharmacogenomics? Well, most people have not. Today, we're going to have the unique pleasure of speaking with Corey Sanders. She's a pharmacist, founder of Huna Health, and currently the president of the Hawaii Pharmacists Association. And she is going to demystify for me and probably quite a few other people pharmacogenomics. What happens if you don't know how you might respond to certain medications and Did you know that could really affect how well they work, which has significant implications in multiple areas? So thank you for joining me this evening. So happy to be here. Now, what does it take to be a pharmacist? You know, I always think I know what it takes to go to medical school and do residency and training, but I really don't know what my pharmacy colleagues go through education-wise, and I know it's a lot. So how did you become a pharmacist? (laughs) You know, it's a very similar pathway to medicine. So we get a four-year doctorate-level degree. It includes three years of didactic teaching in the classroom and then one year of rotations or clinical rotations. Um, After that, pharmacists actually have the opportunity to do up to two years of residency where we can specialize in anything from oncology to cardiology to infectious disease. And so that's what I did. I did one additional year of a general residency and then obtained additional certifications in ambulatory care and pharmacogenomics. So when you talk about becoming a pharmacist, so you finish four years of doctorate level training and you did some advanced training, not everybody necessarily has to, but those are four years after you've gotten a college degree. So this is an additional four years of school and then you can become part of the healthcare team. Where do we see most pharmacists these days? I mean, I think about going to the pharmacy and and picking up a medication, but that's not the only role that they play. What do most pharmacists do? Well, you're correct in that most pharmacists operate in the community setting, so a CVS or a Walgreens or a Walmart. But we have a lot of pharmacists that are also embedded into the healthcare system in different ways. So you can see pharmacists in almost every single hospital. And then in some other states, it's not so common here in Hawaii, but we have pharmacists embedded into primary care clinics and specialty care offices and different entrepreneur roles is really what's happening with the advancement of technology. So pharmacists can be anywhere from the community to a hospital to a drug rep to working in big pharma we can be all over the place. It's a very versatile degree. Well, and I hope we get more pharmacists in primary care. I know that that's part of a team-based care model Mm -hmm. where a lot of patients will have questions about things that, you know, I might not think about. What should they do if they they forgot to take their blood pressure pill today? Do they take it this afternoon or evening with or without food? Do they take it on schedule the next day? I mean, all of these basic questions that I just assume people would figure out, but that's not really the case. When you look at how many different prescription medications the average senior citizen is taking, Mm -hmm. it's incredible. And the number of people on medication. And there's a lot of questions that can arise. And I think, as you mentioned, pharmacists do an additional four years of school to Mm -hmm. know what to do and how to manage these things. And and that's beyond the amount of time that I would have spent learning about all the intricacies about medications. Now, I'm curious, you said a word that I need you to define, pharmacogenomics. It sounds like pharmacy and genetics put together. What is what is it? That's a great place to start, and it's basically the definition of the word. So it's just how your body reacts to certain medications based off genetic predisposition. 
So the one size fits all really doesn't fit anybody. No. So that's how a lot of drugs are developed is this blockbuster mentality of one size fits all. And that couldn't be further from the truth now that we have the technology to measure some of our genetics and how fast we process certain medications. So tell me about processing, because, you know, the basic broad idea is your kidneys process some medications, your liver processes other medications, and that's how it goes. But that's a pretty broad simplification. What is it? What really happens? (laughs) Uh, Medications can be processed in a various amount of ways, like you said, the kidneys or the liver. But what pharmacogenomics really looks at is enzymes that are specific to the liver. And we talk about how fast each of these enzymes work. And that determines how you process different medications. So instead of this one-size-fits-all mentality, you can really do precision prescribing once you know the speed of each of these enzymes or the speed of each of these pathways. And so for some patients, you might not want to take a certain medication at all. For other patients, they might process really fast and you need a higher dose. But it just depends on each patient's pathway, which we can determine through their genetic testing. So how do you do said genetic testing? Really simple, really non-invasive. I know pharmacogenomics is a kind of intimidating term up front, but it is a simple cheek swab test. So similar to the test that you had during COVID, except for going, instead of going up your nose, just right in your cheek. Oh, thank God It's amazing. That. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple. Nothing up your nose, no needles, nothing at all. We can send a kit directly to your house or to your provider's office. You return two cheek swab tests, and then we can just process the results from there. So, you know, often people say, why would it matter how I process medication? And there are certain things where it really could make a huge difference. Are there examples of common medications that that people may want to know what their genetic predisposition is to make sure that it actually works? What would be a common medicine people might have heard about? Sure. The biggest one that I think hits home in Hawaii is Plavix or Clopidogrel. So it's an antiplatelet. It's normally given to patients after they have a stent put in their heart. And what it does is it prevents further clots. But for patients that look like me, and I'm Caucasian, for those of you that can't see me on the radio. <laughs> that would be um, everybody. Yeah, okay. so for everybody. So 10 to 20% of Caucasian patients, Plavix or Clopidogrel doesn't work for them. When we talk about Asian Americans, that number jumps up to 40%. And Pacific Islanders, 70% of Pacific Islanders don't process Plavix. And if that happens, that medication doesn't work for you. And you could end up right back in the hospital with another clot. So that's a big one that's near and dear to Hawaii because... Because just a couple years ago, actually, the state of Hawaii sued the makers of Plavix for not telling us that information when they were marketing it to the population. And the state of Hawaii won over $800 million. What do we do with that? (laughs) You know, I don't know that myself. I don't know if we've gotten the money just yet. I think it's um, going through a revolving door of review. But some other big medications that I think of have to do with mental health. So a lot of the Um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or tricyclic antidepressants, which are all very common mental health medications. They all take months to work. And if you have a patient that's, you know, truly suicidal or having really harmful thoughts or in a really dark place, you don't have months to play with to see if this medication works. So that's another way to really reap the benefits of pharmacogenomic testing and have a better idea of the right drug at the right dose the first time for that patient. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications of knowing this information and how it might change the dose or even change the type of medication prescribed. We'll be right back with Corey Sanders. Stay with us. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm here with Corey Sanders. She is a pharmacist, president of the Hawaii Pharmacist Association, and founder of Huna Health. And right before the break, we were talking about a couple of common medication classes for which the use of these medications, which are very common, particularly here in the islands, Plavix, Clopidogrel, very common, uh, different other medications for what's called SSRIs or tricyclic antidepressants, Things that you may need to know about how your body might process these medications differently than other people. So let's talk briefly about Plavix. You mentioned that for some people, they don't process it the same. So would would that be a situation where they should just take a different medication? Or can you take a higher dose? Does that is it a dose-dependent response? Or is it a class-dependent response? So once you don't respond to that, you should just go somewhere else to a different medicine. So it depends on the results of your genetic tests. And basically, you're categorized with this testing into five different categories. And that ranges from being a non-responder to certain medications to being an ultra-rapid metabolizer. So depending on where you fall in that scale, you can either have a lower dose of the medication or you need to completely avoid it altogether. And that's the importance of getting this testing and finding out exactly where you fall in that range. Now, that's specifically for Plavix. So you might need to, to, like you said, take an alternate therapy or take a different dose. Mm -hmm. And you said about 40% of people who are Asian in Hawaii, 20 to 30% Caucasian, and you mentioned Pacific Islanders. Almost 70% Pacific Islanders, yeah. And that's why I'm so passionate about this testing, specifically here in the state, is that we have such a unique patient population. And this is just all across the board. I mean, a lot of drug development is done on Caucasian patients, and that is not the reality of the healthcare system in the state of Hawaii. So ultimately, I think we should really be leading the charge in pharmacogenomic testing because of our demographic, but it's just not become standard of care and really part of the conversation with health here. So how would it be standard of care? So uh, imagine a clinical scenario. Somebody comes into the emergency room. They're given, you know, unfortunately, they have a cardiac issue. They're given a stent that goes into the coronary arteries, opens up a blockage. They're told, take this medication. It's Plavix. Take it with aspirin. Let's prevent this stent from reocluding or from Mm -hmm. clotting off. So where would the genomic testing be positioned? Because we're talking about like an emergency situation. It's not necessarily in the clinic. How often or what's the turnaround for the testing and how could we really implement this in real world practice? Gosh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> Love um, to add those, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the sad part of the story is we don't even have this testing available in the state. I'm talking with a lab right now that's actually looking to bring pharmacogenomic testing to Hawaii, which would be wonderful. But because of that, you almost have to have proactive testing. You have to have it done before you get the stent. And so the way it is right now, we outsource our testing to a lab on the West Coast. The turnaround time is generally 14 to 21 days. But that could be too late for some patients that need immediate care or are already in a hospital position. So what would be a better scenario? You mentioned doing it before then. So if you have, if I see a patient in the clinic who has risk factors, Mm -hmm. really bad cholesterol, diabetes, high blood pressure, not so good control on those. And I think, well, this is somebody who if, if they did have a cardiac event, I wouldn't be surprised. Is that when you start initiating the genomic testing? And how would that be translated to the providers in the hospital? I mean, Mm -hmm. how would they know? Sure. 
And so that is one of the biggest obstacles is we don't have anywhere to put proactive testing in the EMR right now. So I'm working in a healthcare system in the state right now where we're doing pharmacogenomic testing in pain patients, but unfortunately it just gets uploaded into the other documents of the patient profile. In an ideal world, and what's happening in some other states, is that it's actually built out into the EMR where if a clinician goes to order a medication that's not appropriate for that patient, they get a hard stop and there's an integrated clinical decision support tool that will say, hey, you know that medication is not good for that patient. Mm, like the allergies would exactly. stop me from, somebody's exactly. allergic to penicillin, I can't prescribe that because it'll flag me and say, there's an allergy on the chart. There's a problem. Right, right. But in an ideal world, you're not even getting to the point where your patient's on five or more medications. Ideally, this is all done proactively. That way, when you need to make a decision for the first time, it can be an evidence-based genome-guided decision that's unique for that patient. So I like to break patients into two buckets. You have the proactive patients that want this testing up front. They don't want to get to the point where they've had adverse drug reactions or therapeutic failures. Or you have reactive patients that are you know, have fallen through the cracks of the healthcare system, so to speak. They're on five plus medications, five, 10, 15 medications. They've experienced a bunch of bad issues related to their medications, and now they want to get genomic testing to streamline their therapy. So to answer your original question, in an ideal world, this is done before you even need to initiate medications. But another obstacle is the insurance coverage component of the testing, which is why it's not so commonplace just yet. So what is the overall cost? I'm curious. So the overall cost, I will give you a comparison. And years ago, it was thousands of dollars. Now, because we've made so many significant advancements in technology, it's less than 300 And then there's an additional cost of a consult, but just the test itself, $250. And so when you think about some of the other direct-to-consumer testing, you know, there's 23andMe, there's Ancestry, there's Nat Geo, there's a whole bunch of different ones out there. It's around the same cost as those. So there exactly. are some other different types of genetic testing that are direct-to-consumer commercially available. And this may affect your healthcare and specifics, but not necessarily give you your ancestry per, per se. Exactly. And that's an important delineation, too, is that this is completely different from ancestry testing. And something else for consumers and providers to also consider is that not all genetic testing is created equal. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to have someone who is comfortable in the space and an expert in the space and knows the guidelines and knows which medications are ultimately being pulled onto a panel and what recommendations are being made and what's the evidence behind that. So you have some lab companies that provide very broad, not clinically relevant evidence. And you want to work with a company that's really guideline-directed, evidence-based, and gives very specific clinical support. Does the metabolism of different medications change based on the number of medicines people are on? You mentioned that, you know, someone might be on 5, 10, or more medications. Would that alter the metabolism overall of all the different medications? And in that case, it almost seems like the potential need is exponential. Mm -hmm. Which is, gosh, this we're going to go deep in the weeds. But what you exactly described is called phenoconversion. So instead of this drug-gene interactions that's picked up on pharmacogenomic testing, you have drug-drug gene interactions. So now they're on a medication that's an inhibitor of a certain pathway, and that alters their response to the genetic test. So it's important to have all of those things into consideration so you can understand the big clinical picture, because drugs can certainly play a role. Patients are already on medications. Now, you mentioned that there are certain medications, and we talked about a very commonly used clopidogrel or Plavix medication that's used in the cardiac or neurologic world. There are some other situations with mental health medications you mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. Are those some of the larger areas where this type of knowledge can directly change therapeutics? 
Exactly. Yeah. Especially with mental health, because a lot of those medications go through different pathways. So by knocking out one pathway, you completely change the game with what the therapeutic plan is going to look like. So let's talk about the potential perfect world. There's a genetic test. This allows to allows a provider to determine what would be the most appropriate type of medication alterations if someone were to use certain medications. Mm-hmm. Let's ignore the EMR issues at the moment because maybe that'll get fixed. It hasn't been yet. But if there's some way to put it in the chart, okay. How would someone like myself, so I'm a primary care provider, I see patients, more than half of my panel is geriatric, lots of medications, mm-hmm. multiple medicines all together, and a lot of supplements. People take a lot of those different types of things to try and help themselves feel better. How would I be able to utilize some of this information? So if I got a report back for one of my patients that said, here are some situations that you want to be careful with, would they take into an account the medications the patient is already on Mm -hmm. and then give some directed clinical advice on how to manage those doses or alterations to make for different therapies? Sure. And this is where it comes down to the integrity of the test in the lab that you're working with. Some labs will give very detailed reports. They'll give you dosage recommendations. They can even give you um, some additional support if you need to make a medication change altogether. But it certainly doesn't take into account some of the other drug-drug interactions. If you are going to change the medication regimen, it just comes down to the integrity of the test and the platform that they have. But it does become really hard, especially here in the state where we're short almost a 1,000 providers. I mean, it is so hard to add this additional layer of complexity to someone's plate who's already working overtime. And, you know, it's you really do. I'm passionate because I'm biased and I'm a pharmacist. I feel like this is where a pharmacist can step into practice in an ideal situation. You have a pharmacist embedded in the clinic that can pay and be billed for services and ultimately provide that level of expertise to the provider. What are the barriers that we have right now? Biggest barriers in the state is legislation has not evolved to match the progression of the profession. So pharmacists, I mean, we're medication experts. We get far more training in medication management than any other healthcare provider, but we cannot bill independently for our services. So NPs, PAs, MDs, DOs can all bill under the medical benefit of insurance, and pharmacists cannot do that. So we almost have to provide our expertise for free, or you need to have a collaborative practice agreement with the physician who ultimately ends up billing for the test or for the consult or for the service, and then the physician would reimburse the pharmacist. But that is a really complicated model, and the reimbursement, as you know, is very delayed. Well, and the other element that I find fascinating is that with COVID, everybody sort of adopted the mentality of, I have to get my vaccinations at the pharmacy. And in a lot of ways, that actually facilitated the use of pharmacists as people who are members of the care team. And then I know there have been some questions about, well, if pharmacists can give these medications, what other types of, or these vaccines, what other sorts of vaccines can they give? And I know there's an an idea of trying to expand the role of clinical pharmacists, but it sounds like you mean even beyond just vaccination, they have such a great value of mm-hmm. what they could do. We just need to work on the legislation, like you said. And it's this is this is throughout the U.S. Though so this isn't just is this Hawaii based or is it nationwide? CMS Centers for Medicare Medicaid also don't recognize pharmacists as entities that can bill. Is that correct? So there's no federal legislation from CMS, but that can be. Um, combated with state-level legislation. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we're seeing all across the country is pharmacists putting legislation into the local local legislature and combating this on the state level to meet the needs of their 
of their state. Um, but something that can be done is really starting to create this team-based care model that just doesn't exist yet here in the state. So it's kind of like the chicken and an egg situation, right, where you need the legislation to create the model, but you also need to show proof of concept before that goes into effect. So that's what we're working on with the state association. Well, it sounds like a lot of work, and it sounds like something very necessary. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Corey Sanders and how this process of pharmacogenomics has made her so passionate. She has a plan to help move the state forward in educating our population of patients and our providers. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I'm talking with Corey Sanders. She is a pharmacist, and she is the president of the Hawaii Pharmacist Association, and she's the founder of Huna Health now. Corey, you found a passion with pharmacogenomics, knowing how you might respond to medications before you wind up getting prescribed these medications so that if you need a therapeutic alternative or if a medicine may not work, you know that before before it's prescribed. It's similar to an allergy kind of a, a situation. You know, if if we know somebody doesn't tolerate a certain medication, Nice to know that before you give it to them. Sure. And in a situation of an allergy, if somebody's allergic to something and gets hives, they may have to experience hives again before we understand and know that they're allergic to it. But wouldn't it be nice with certain medications, particularly in the cardiac space, mental health space, to know if someone would be a responder before they actually take it? Then you know if this is going to work for them. Mm -hmm. So part of this passion that you've had which I think is ideally placed, we do need to have this team-based approach and have pharmacists integrated with patients in the clinic. They often are at the hospital in the bedside helping with situations with people in the hospital. But before you get there, wouldn't it be nice to know this in advance? This has led you to develop a whole company and you have founded it. What mm -hmm. does Huna Health do? So there's a couple different branches to my company. Right now, I'm finishing up a grant that I have with the Department of Health to look at pharmacogenomic testing in pain patients because there's some implications with opioids as well and tramadol and ibuprofen. Um, but after that, I will be transitioning to really looking for business to business. So working with providers where I can become embedded in the clinic and become a resource and do everything from ordering and explaining the testing to patients to giving recommendations where they're needed. So I know that physicians in the state don't need additional work. And I want to be able to embed this into your practice without you having to lift an additional finger when you're already working overtime. And then also going direct to consumer as well. So if you have patients that want this testing outside of a provider's office, I think that if we're not providing, if, our, if the care we're providing isn't safe, it's not really care. And so I'm happy to empower patients to take ownership of their health and also, you know, leverage them and empower them to know this information before they even walk into an office. Well, and, and it's similar to what I've seen over the last five, 10 years. We've started to see some of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing, mm -hmm. ancestry testing, I was now on Facebook, I guess, I don't know what I look at on Facebook, but apparently I was getting these ads for rare disease, genetic testing. I'm like, exactly Great. what demographic <laughs> am I in? I'm getting that and a whole bunch of ads for like senior products. I'm like, okay, who knows? But whatever the algorithm is, it's caught me. Mm -hmm. But I find those those sorts of ways to bring it directly to the patient almost ideal where we stand right now 
given the current difficulties with the uphill battle of legislation. Right. However, for a lot of these different tests, I would imagine that you could probably use flexible spending money to cover for these expenses, and therefore it would cost you less if you have that sort of a plan with your employer. Yep, that is absolutely correct. So that can cover not only the cost of the test, but if you wanted to pay me to do it independently, it would cover the cost of the consult as well. And with that information, does it change over time or once you get this profile, that's pretty much your profile. It's not really going to alter. When you get older, it's going to be what it is. Yep. It's a one-time test. The beautiful thing is that there's a lot of research being done right now on different medications. So even though your genetics won't change over time, we'll certainly add to the list of medications that we can know and adjust based on those genetic results. So now the test that currently you're looking at, I think you mentioned... The direct-to-consumer testing would be about 38 different genetic variables. Yep. And that would be on a cheek swab. Based on a cheek swab. And then someone would know how they might respond to medications. And and they could put that in their electronic medical record. It could I could envision it going into the history section and it being some kind of an alert. Like I can sort of think about how would an electronic medical record perceive this. And there are ways. I mean, I certainly think we've incorporated... Uh, GFR, glomerular yep. filtration rate, that has come into medical records. It tells me if I want to give a medication that might be too high of a dose given their kidney function. Mm-hmm. We know allergies are embedded. That's another thing that stops me from ordering something if someone is truly allergic to it. So this seems like this is another one of those, almost like one of the vital signs. How might you respond to certain medications? Sure. And the way that I love to describe it is that, you know, this isn't an end-all be-all. Like based off this test, we're not going to be able to give you 100% perfect medication prescribing for the rest of your life. But this is certainly another amazing tool to have in your clinical tool belt to be able to have a more educated decision and to empower the patient to know a little bit more about their health or why you prescribed certain things and why that might not have worked. And also just build another component of trust between the patient and the healthcare system that you're providing the best care that you possibly can. So if people want to find out more, where can they go? Sure. They can find me on my website, sohuna-health.com. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, and that's a really easy place to reach me. So if you're a provider interested in this information, I'm happy to talk over LinkedIn, or you can reach me on my website and book a consult. I've never linked in. <laughs> I mean, I probably ought to link in at some point. I'm not really quite sure what that service is. You know is. what? It really depends on who you follow, how useful LinkedIn is. So, okay. you know, I don't want you to be getting rare genetic disease Well, maybe testing. it's like Facebook. <laughs> like I'm getting these algorithms of strange stuff because I clicked on something. Who knows? Sure. Okay. So those are mechanisms people can find you. And, you know, let's project, I mean, in the next five, 10 years, what we've seen in the last decade or so has been some pretty transformative ways in which not just we've become more adept at direct-to-consumer genetic testing, mm-hmm. but also pharmacists have expanded their role. And it's been there's been a highlight to pharmacy role with vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And then there hopefully will be some more ways that we can incorporate the excellent efforts of pharmacists into what we do as part of a healthcare team. Where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? What would you love to see happen future-wise? Well, gosh, for the pharmacy profession, I would love for us to be paid as medication experts. So right now we're not. We can't bill independently. As part of a care team, you have to rely on someone else to bill for you. And that's just not a maintainable and reliable way to make 
an income. So I would love if pharmacists were able to bill here locally in the state for both public and private insurers. And that was part of the legislation that the Hawaii Pharmacists Association actually put forward this year. It ultimately didn't get passed, but what did get passed was an audit so that we can look at running that back in 2024. And we did have support from the Hawaii Medical Association because we are all about team-based care and pharmacists are being completely under-leveraged in this state. We're really just only being able to be paid in a dispensing role. I think COVID did a great job of highlighting the utility of a pharmacist by allowing us to operate at a little bit more of an expanded scope of practice. But that's truly just the tip of the iceberg on what pharmacists can do. I mean, we can be trained in so many specialty areas and being able to be billed for those services would be absolutely wonderful. Well, I don't want to have to wait five or 10 years for that to happen. Me either. Because I do think that... (laughs) This whole idea of incorporating the entire care team to help with patients is absolutely essential. I want to thank you, Corey Sanders, pharmacist and president of the Hawaii Pharmacists Association, founder of Huna Health, for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. No problem. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We are definitely going to have to do it again. I might just do my own pharmacogenomic profile, and I'll share it with everybody. (laughs) If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show or find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about ways to stay healthy right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Woo!